My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. How would you describe the work you do? Tell me if you can relate to any of these real, real answers to that question. I am a facilitator, artist, and healer. I am a good person independent, intelligent, doing a job to support myself. I'm a professional providing a service I'm no better or worse than anyone else. I provide a service that is a healthy outlet for people, healthy that is, if all of our companion rules are followed. I am a pioneer. I'm an entrepreneur. I am an exciting person who is ever-evolving with the ever-evolving, changing world. They all sound pretty admirable, right? And they didn't come from poets or doctors or social activists. They came from sex workers, all quoted by the same website called Trade Secrets, Health and Safety in the Sex Industry. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and in my opinion, there are many good girls, good human beings, good women who work in the sex industry. Like other jobs and careers, not all sex workers choose a vocation for empowering reasons. But regardless of the motivation, sex work is chosen work, not to be confused with sex trafficking or any kind of coerced or non-consensual sexual transactions. As an industry, it generates well over $100 billion worldwide every year, according to various estimates. And yet, it remains criminalized in many countries, as you probably know, including the United States. Is this a problem? Well, I certainly think so, as do many others in the sex-positive community, including, get this, the World Health Organization and today's magnificent guest. Dr. Chantal Tibbles is a renowned sociologist whose studies focus on human interaction with and society's relation to taboo subject matters in the areas of adult entertainment, gender, sexuality, sex work, entertainment, pop culture, and technology. By obtaining a job at an adult entertainment studio, Dr. Chantel garnered firsthand knowledge of the industry for her thesis research, which is awesome. It's made her one of the leading experts in the field. She's been quoted by all kinds of media outlets, including the Huffington Post, Jezebel.com, CNN, many more. She writes a monthly column on the adult industry for Uproxx's FilmDrunk.com, and her work is featured in the fourth edition of university textbook called The Real World, an Introduction to Sociology. I'm so excited to have you here with me, Dr. Tibbles. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's very nice to be here, August. Thank you. Of course. Uh, Before we discuss the actual uh, World Health Organization report, I would love to hear just a little bit about uh, your background um, in addition to what I, I just shared. What inspired you to pursue work and study involving the adult industry and sex work in the first place? You know, honestly, it's kind of a, a long and complicated story, but at the same time, it's not that complicated at all. Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I was doing a master's degree at Cal State Northridge, which is right in the San Fernando Valley. 
And that's where the hub of adult content production was and still is, but things are really sort of shifting. And this is back in 2000 when I started this. And I was studying sociology and feminist scholarship and all kinds of different things about sex and the body and body image. And, you know, I, I really like media, and so I was kind of poking around, learning all this stuff, and I started really getting into scholarship about sex work. And then when I discovered the scholarship about porn, type of sex work, obviously, um, and learned that, you know, porn was centered right in the valley where I was, I was, like, shocked. Mm-hmm. And um, I was. So it's like, how could too. this be yeah. right here? This Because part of the reason why I was so shocked is because everything I was reading about um, in like, academic scholarship, but then also, you know, you have to remember too, this is probably like 2001 now at this point, um, the internet wasn't what it is today. Um, and, and so there was very few, even like in-depth journalistic inquiries into the adult entertainment industry. And they were all largely negative, talking about exploitation and abuse and this and that. And I, that's why I was shocked. I was shocked that this is a horrible atrocious industry could be happening right in my beautiful little San Fernando Valley where I was going to school. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, I'm kind of a naturally curious and naturally sort of a suspicious person. So if somebody tells me this is the way it is for whatever reason, especially in my early 20s, I'm going to be like, wait a minute. <laughs> nothing is all or nothing. So um, and I just made an all or nothing statement. How ironic. Um so I started kind of looking around a little bit, and it just made less and less sense to me. The geography of the city, the fact that, you know, adult content production had been legal in the state of California since the late 80s, it, it, it didn't make sense that this terrible exploitative industry was operating simultaneously in this basically suburban community, you know, how is this happening? So I knew there was some sort of puzzle there, but I was not connected to the business at all. I didn't know anybody who worked in there. Et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of had this interest, but that was all there was. And um, I finished up my master's degree at CSUN, and I moved on to the University of Texas at Austin to get my PhD. And given that opportunity to do way more in-depth research, I started exploring labor opportunity in adults for women specifically, but it's just mushroomed into so many things. And now it's you know, 10, 15 years later, and here I am. <laughs> Fascinating. That is, that is so interesting. And I actually want to circle back to what you mentioned about uh, uh, the porn industry in particular in a second here after we uh, dip into this report a bit. Um, the So the World Health Organization, which I mentioned earlier, released this report on uh, ways to, uh, for one thing, help spread uh, the epidemic of HIV in, in certain populations. And one of its recommendations uh is basically to decriminalize sex work uh, globally, which um, is a, a big deal, especially since the um, World Health Organization isn't really known for being supportive of, of controversial, um, you know, issues or stances. How no. how would decriminalization the? That's a difficult word. How would decriminalizing sex work help reduce the spread of HIV? Well, first of all, you know, to kind of preface this whole conversation that we're about to have right here. You know, when the World Health Organization, or the WHO, as I say it, I don't know if it's a California thing, but there's always a duh. So if I slip up and call the World Health Organization the WHO, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's totally cool. I mean, it's a socialism, so I have no idea. But anyway, when the WHO says we're going to decriminalize, or we recommend decriminalizing sex work, 
we have to kind of take that with a grain of salt and, and go know going in that they're not talking about how that would be operationalized and how that would be operationalized would be wildly different, you know, just in the United States, just in the state of California, much less the whole entire world, because sex work is so complex and there are so many different types of sex work. And even when we're talking about a type of sex work, there are so many different strata and so many different iterations and types and communities and on and on. So talking about how it would look, how it would stop or, or help attenuate the spread of HIV, we got to always keep in mind that, that this is a really diverse and really, really complex conversation. But I think at the, the crux of, of what they're talking about is that if sex work were decriminalized, then people would be more apt to seek information, seek protective, um, be it barrier protection. Um, I, I don't know. If, if it was not illegal, then if something were to have happened to them, if they had been exposed to HIV or potentially exposed to HIV through the course of their job, perhaps they would seek care, any kind of thing like that. When, when somebody is working in what's technically an illegal occupation, and there's different iterations of sex work that are legal, but if you're talking about one of the currently illegal in whatever culture, um, a type of sex work like that, you all of a sudden marginalize those workers by making them stigmatize, quote-unquote, criminals if they need help, if they need services. So what then happens is they're sort of left to their own devices. Now, this is not to say that people who are sex workers their own devices are a pretty good thing. I mean, most people who I know who work in an illegal sex work occupation are very aware of their bodies, very aware of their labor, very aware of their surroundings, et cetera, et cetera. But there comes a point where you could possibly cut off a lot of exposure, infection, harm, et cetera, et cetera, if people were not afraid to come forth or we're not afraid to seek services, and that fear comes from, you know, stigma and engaging in illegal criminal behavior. Okay, interesting. And I'm glad you clarified and, and made the point about it being so different, you know, in the U.S. versus uh, third world countries, for example, or any country. We have such such diversity in our in our entire world, especially when it comes to, to sexuality. As you probably know, they recently uh, made condoms, you know, um, mandatory on, on porn sets and things like that. And I've heard from people who work in porn, they're kind of upset about that. Uh, they feel like there's too much control. Do you feel like in the United States, if sex work was decriminalized, that there would be more regulations um, in good and bad ways potentially, or is it really hard to say? Um. Well, it's hard to say for sure. I think the thing that would really shape um, appropriate regulation, over-regulation, or inappropriate regulation would be how much willingness regulators were, like how much willingness regulators had to engage the population. So you just cited the example of the adult entertainment in, adult entertainment industry and mandatory barrier protection because it's not just condoms that extends, you know, much further than that. And, and that's just Measure B, which was passed in L.A. County in November of 2012. And currently, um, it's going through the California Assembly is a bill, um, AB 1576, which is seeking to make uh, barrier protection mandatory um, throughout the state for vaginal and anal sex, not oral, which I find really interesting. And there's also a testing mandate, which is 
not as stringent as the one the adult industry already um, self-regulates itself with. And then there's also a, um, a health and safety disclosure, which is interesting because part of the whole excuse for this process in the first place was HIPAA law and medical privacy. So the whole thing is very, very ironic. But just using that as an example, um, performers, any performer will tell you that they want a choice to, you know, use a condom or not use a condom, use a barrier or not use a barrier. And it has to do with how they perform their work, who they work with. Um, and, and basically, this is part of why this law is off mark. And it's because people who sort of invented it or came up with it or who have authored the various cycles of it didn't go to the workers and, and ask about the state of the labor that they perform. They're unfamiliar with how porn or excuse me, sex on a porn set work, et cetera, et cetera. So you have regulators who are probably kind of skeeved out by the idea of porn in the first place and think, oh gosh, you know, a condom is the way to make things safer. But for a person who's performing professional sex performance labor, it's not really the way it works. So bringing this back to the who, you know, if regulators were willing to go into a specific sex worker population and, and learn the ins and outs of the labor that they did, learn the needs of the population, because brothel prostitutes in Nevada are not the same as escorts in San Francisco, for example. It's totally different structure, totally different society, on and on. So if regulators, policymakers were willing to go in and actually do the work, we might actually get some useful, helpful regulation. But if people were just going to be like, oh yeah, it's legal, like prostitution's legal, condoms for everybody, that's not going to help anybody because it's not learning the ins and outs of the labor. Instead, it's just sort of putting a band-aid or throwing out arbitrary regulations. Sure. Oh, that, that absolutely makes sense. And do you, how, I know it's hard to say exactly how likely or how feasible, do you foresee that being likely in, in the near future that, you know, that Various countries um, that the U.S. will adopt um, these these kind of mandates, and and also, is there any sort of effort being put forth to say, you know, from from sociologists and from other people who are expert in the industry, um, to to advocate for that? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, in terms of of what's happened, you know, since the WHO, for example, put out this recommendation, I, I don't know. Um, I would expect that places and spaces, be it nation states, states, communities, I don't know, counties, however small you would get, there were already, um, that already had a more liberal attitude about sex work probably might actually take some steps and, and, and work to enact these initiatives and enact them in a way that's beneficial. Um, I imagine places and spaces that are already pretty down on sex work, um, you know, be it different conservative parts of the United States or different conservative parts of the world. I expect that these recommendations will probably go nowhere because people, it's, this, this whole conversation is predicated upon an attitude about sex in the first place, an attitude about sex as a behavior as something that people enjoy, as something that people need, and that's something that people can engage as, you know, a bit of labor. And when you already have a, you know, a 
cultural wise norm that says sex is bad or sex is supposed to be within, between two married people, sex is supposed to be heterosexual, sex is supposed to look like this. When you already have that attitude or a similar type of attitude, then the notion of decriminalizing sex and, or excuse me, sex work and finding beneficial policy to help sex workers, that's such an outer limit concept (laughs) that I don't think that, I'm not really thinking that, you know, the Bible Belt is going to be out there figuring out ways to help their sex workers um, after they've taken steps to decriminalize whatever laws they have standing against them. So So it's interesting because Honestly, I hate to sound all gloom and doom about it, but this recommendation will probably benefit um, the more privileged of, you know, in terms of social liberalism, sex workers who are already privileged enough to be in relatively socially liberal environments. So, you know, a, a pretty socially liberal environment is the city of San Francisco. So maybe people, regulators in the city of San Francisco will say, hey, look, here's a, we now have like a stamp of approval from the WHO. We're going to go ahead and take these laws off the book and everything's going to be great. So people who already, and I mean, I'm not saying that San Francisco is the best place to be a sex worker by no way, shape or form, but relative to like, I don't even want to make a joke about what kind of city it would be terrible and so I won't, but, but relative to another place that's less liberal than San Francisco, there's probably a little bit of benefit. So I would say that these recommendations are really probably going to um, impact people who are already on the, the relatively privileged end of the sex worker spectrum, if that makes sense. It does. That is, that is really interesting. I suppose one benefit is hopefully it will, you know, inspire many conversations, you know, that are needed about these attitudes because it definitely seems like the underlying uh, problems will, you know, still be there. And, and, uh, you know, like you said, it's not going to change a lot of people's minds per se. And I actually was reading, I was trying to see, uh, what the kind of, um, opponents thought about this. And I know that one concern they have is that if it were to, uh, take place that hordes of people, or at least more people would suddenly go, Oh, I can get a, a job and as a sex worker. And they feel that that's a negative thing. Uh, what's your, what's your take on that? <laughs> Say that again. Uh, so basically what I read was that opponents feel that if um, sex work was yeah. legal, that a lot of people would suddenly want to join that career path. And they think that's right. bad. So what would you say to them, I guess? Um, well, <laughs> probably. I mean, that would probably be the case. You know, if, if something is kind of like the legalization of marijuana. There's a lot of people who choose not to smoke pot, not because they don't want to, but because they don't want to get in, in trouble, quote unquote. And if it becomes legal, then, oh, that's, I can go ahead and do that now. So if something is, is legal labor and people are interested in that kind of labor, then, you know, more people would do it. And it's interesting to think about that because even this idea of legalization or I shouldn't say legalization, just decriminalizing, um, the words have such a different connotation to me. Um, even that, if, when the who makes this recommendation or when they've made this recommendation, they're not making this recommendation about to get at attitudes about sex. They're doing this as, as like an epidemiological kind of thing. Like if, if more people were sexually educated or if more people were aware, if less people were sneaking around, 
if less people were hiding the fact that they were going to be prostitutes, for example, then there would be less spread of this this infection versus, oh, if we were to stop marginalizing sex workers, this might help people's attitudes about sex in general. So it's a markedly different approach or it's the idea, ideologies behind even the World Health Organization making this recommendation kind of show that it's more about epidemiology and more about like quote unquote hard science than it is about social attitudes and, and things like that. And and that's really interesting because I think that part of the reason why the WHO was finally able to make this recommendation was that they could show, they could track, there you could see, all right, these are the populations that we see a lot of HIV infection, a lot of HIV spread. And here's one way we can help this very, very um active population, let's just say, versus, you know, thinking about, for example, adult industry workers where there's not a lot of HIV infection and, and worrying about that population. Okay, I got you. Yeah, that is very interesting, for sure. And um, when it comes to sexuality, you know, all these cultural beliefs and the taboos that we do have about sexuality, I imagine, you know, that a lot of people hearing this, if they are kind of in the sex positive community, you know, really wanting to be able to make some sort of a difference, even if it's on a small scale. And if this is not perhaps a very realistic thing to, to happen soon, though I know you never really know, um, in the United States, what are some things that we actually can do um, to contribute to a more positive sexuality climate for people and our attitudes? You know, I personally think that the root of a lot of our cultural issue with sex has to do with sex education. So, you know, not everybody has to have a positive attitude or an approving attitude about sex work, for example, or about, you know, adult entertainment or about condom usage, for example. But the thing that's kind of important and something that touches every human is that every human has a sexuality. You know, and that sexuality can be heterosexuality, it can be queer sexuality, it can be pansexuality, it can be asexuality, but everybody has some version of sexuality. And our lack of education about human sexuality, be it how, how bodies work on a, on a scientific practical level to sort of the, the social, con social and cultural connotations that we associate with particular behaviors, and who's engaging in those behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. I think, honestly, like, in, in so many years of doing this work and focusing on the adult industry for sure, but just being around sex work in general and, and sex, you know, overall and sexuality, is the education about it and understanding what's happening is the thing that really, like, like it trips us up. So regardless of what your stance is, you know, so conservative, be it religious, be it liberal, be it the wildest thing ever, whatever it is, if you have sort of judgment-free and, and relatively <laughs> relatively judgment-free and rigorous, so, so no invented ideology about, you know, this is what's going to happen if you have this kind of sex and it has something to do with monsters or your soul burning or something like that, but really and truly kind of reaching out to a community and saying, hey, you know, this is what I'm going to do to help this cause. I think that that is something that an average person, a, a regular person on the ground could do on a daily basis is to think about the, the true ins and outs of sex 
as they see it, as their community sees it, and reaches out to young people, to, uh, to their peers, whatever it is, and works on that angle. Because if people are more aware of, of how sex actually works and the spectrum of sexualities that are possible for humans and, and things like that, then all of a sudden the idea that, you know, a college co-ed might choose to be a sex worker for a while as a, as a job becomes less like weird, oh my gosh, or stigmatizing or something like that. And then that helps kind of shift the culture. It's a tiny little drop helping us to change a corner one drop at a time. And I think that's like, you know, sort of long-winded answer to your question. I really think that thinking about sex education and doing whatever you possibly can to further positive sex education is something that anybody could do to kind of work in the vision of the WHO's recommendation. That's wonderful uh, recommendation and insight, I think, for so many reasons. It's amazing how many people, I ask a lot of guests here about their sex education, and so many of them had almost none or learned something pretty damaging or, you know, something really shame-inducing. And I think it's interesting how when one person, like you said, starts a conversation or opens up, how much more comfortable other people around that person are because... I think we're so worried about what other people think even more than sometimes we're worried about embracing our own sexuality. So I could see that being really Yeah, for sure. Helpful. And it's, it's interesting to think too, it, and, and I'm in no way suggesting that everybody has to teach the same version or everybody has to have the same version. Like people, people like what they like and they do what they do. And we have our own little subcultural ins and outs, but within the context of whatever it is that you like or do ins and outs, just be realistic and teach real stuff about it. That's the that's the thing. So if you're a person who your spiritual beliefs advocate, you know, waiting for marriage, that's fine. But don't tell somebody that, you know, something fictitious is going to happen to them if they don't, or don't deny them information because you think that that's going to prevent them from doing it. You know, the, the conversation really should be about, you know, this is why we culturally believe this, but here, this is how your body works at the same time, you know, and, and I don't think that those things are at odds with one another. I don't think providing a person with practical information and then also culturally specific information is problematic. Unfortunately, though, I don't think a lot of people out there share my belief, but oh well. No, but it's so great that you are sharing your belief and that you are dedicating your, you know, your professional life and, and all of your work into such, such important causes. I admire it so much and it's so helpful. No, thank you. To so many people. So seriously, thank you. I remember the first, um, first time I talked openly about sex, I was in college already and I, you know, taking a break after high school. So I was in, I was 20, 21. And I remember this, this, uh, professor getting up in front of the room and asking us questions about our sexuality. And it was, it's life changing when somebody who, you know, is knowledgeable and says, you know, you're okay. Like sexuality is okay. And you could say vagina instead of your private part or just blush and point down there. And you could be, you know, just, <laughs> just all those little things, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. very cool thing. Um, and how can people learn more about your work? What's the best place? Um, the best place to learn about, you know, blog work and academic work is on my blog. Um, everything, I, I've published a lot of work in law journals and a lot of work in different sociology journals, um, research-wise. So if anybody's interested in my research about adult entertainment or law or technology, they can go to my blog. It's just chantelsibbles.com. 
and there's a whole listing of every of more boring papers than you ever wanted to read. <laughs> I love it. I'm they're not that it. they're not that boring actually, but that's there. Um, it's a resource that anybody can go and look at and see. You know, it's again, it's, it's like peer reviewed academic research, so you know it has a certain tone. But then there's also, you know, there's all the links to interviews I've done and different op eds I've written and blogs and things that are a bit more colloquial and more fun and, and more like my real self versus my academic self and all that's there. And I'm also very, very active on Twitter. So people can always go to Twitter at, at Dr. Chantel and I'm there all the time. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that. Thank you so much. And thanks again for being here. Oh, don't mention it. Thank you so much, August. Isn't she fabulous? Uh, you really have to check her out, and I have already connected with her on Twitter. Again, it's at Dr. Chantel. How you spell her name is uh, Dr. D-R-C-H-A-U-N-T-E-L-L-E. Tibbles is T-A, I'm sorry, T-I-B-B-A-L-S. Uh, and I actually asked on uh, the Girl Boner Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash mygirlboner, how people thought about um, these changes that um, people are talking about that the WHO have recommended. And uh, I have a couple of responses to share with you. Uh, let's see. One came from Tracy. Uh, I asked, how do you feel about the decriminalization of sex work? And Tracy said, legalize it, regulate it, tax it, just like any other valid mainstream business. Very good point there. And Trish Causey, uh, I've spoken about her here before, you may recall. Uh, she sent me a beautiful answer here. I'm going to share a little excerpt and then probably share more of what she shared on my blog as well. Um, she said, today, sex work should be legalized to remove the stigma, regulated to protect the workers as well as the clients and create jobs, and uh, taxed to bring in revenue. It's high time our 21st century secular society got its collective head out of the medieval misogyny. She's a brilliant uh, activist, and she actually has a feature-length article on this topic coming out in her new magazine. Uh, I'm very excited. She actually also interviewed me for the magazine recently, so keep an eye out. Uh, it's called Aroused Woman Magazine. How much do we love that? Uh, you can go to www.aroused.woman.com for more information. For more sex-positive chit-chat issues, serious stuff, hilarious stuff. We, we giggle a whole lot um, and just have a lot of fun. Make sure you visit uh, the Girl Boner communities online for links to my blog, the Girl Boner Facebook page, and my Twitter page. You can head over to my website, which is simply augustmclaughlin.com. And for more on Dr. Tibbles, again, it's chantelletibbles.com, and her Twitter handle is at Dr. Chantel. And if you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't, and leave us a simple review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.